Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists, where each month MCW brings you the science behind the health topics you're hearing about in the news. This series is brought to you by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment, a statewide nonprofit that works to improve health and advance health equity in Wisconsin. I'm Julia Schmidt from the Kern Institute at MCW, your host for today. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Nicole Lohr, cardiologist and chief of cardiovascular medicine at the Zablocki VA Medical Center. We're going to talk about the science behind cardiovascular health, understanding risk factors, and tips for the prevention of cardiovascular disease. Dr. Lohr is a physician educator who earned her MD and M and PhD in physiology from the Medical College of Wisconsin, where she also went on to complete her residency training and her fellowship in cardiology. She's a member of the MCW Cardiovascular Center's signature program in precision cardiovascular medicine. Dr. Lohr is a passionate advocate of women's cardiovascular health and has been a recipient of funds from AHW for research in women's cardiovascular diseases. Dr. Laura, welcome to Coffee Conversations. Welcome. Uh, hi, Julia. And hi, everybody. I'd like to welcome all of you uh, to the next, you know, half hour or so about talking about our heart health. So thanks. Um, we're going to cover a list of questions regarding the science behind cardiovascular health, um, as well as understanding risk factors and tips for prevention. And I encourage all of you watching today to drop any questions you have into the comment section, and we'll answer as many of your questions as possible during our time together. But let's just get started. Uh, first of all, Dr. Lohr, cardiovascular health is such a broad topic. Can you just share the definition of cardiovascular health to ground us as we start? You know, great point. Cardiovascular health is really large because it really talks about our heart and our blood vessels and our heart pumps blood to throughout our entire body. So it really impacts not only, you know, just the heart itself, but outside of it. And so heart disease, um, when we think about it in, in broad terms, really can include um, heart muscle damage, blood vessel damage, heart valve damage. And, and like I said, some of the, the larger blood vessels that come off of the heart. So um, we can also think of irregular heartbeats and arrhythmias. So um, I think for all of us, the key takeaway message is that a healthy heart depends on really making sure that we're conscious about um, what we're doing um, to keep, you know, good blood sugar control, good blood pressure control, and then exercise. We want to exercise our hearts really well too. Thank you. That, yeah, it's really a system, right? And everything connects and everything affects other things. So great. Thank you. So um, now can you tell us what is cardiovascular disease then? So I think for most of us in the audience, when we think of um, cardiovascular disease, we're thinking of heart attacks. And so I think I want to spend most of the time talking about that because cardiovascular disease is actually the number one killer of Americans. Um, and so when we think about it, we think a lot about having a heart attack. Um, again, I think that, you know, 
there's other diseases, but the one I, I want to really think we can make the most change on is really, is really heart disease or a coronary artery disease. Okay. And, um, what kind of, um, what kind of risk factors, um, would cause that? Yeah. So let's talk about really what coronary artery disease is first, and then we can kind of talk about really what we can do to manage our risk for having coronary artery disease. So coronary artery, the coronary arteries are blood vessels that come off of the aorta and actually feed the heart muscle. And so when we hear about heart attacks, what we're, what we're really talking about is that the blood vessels are either blocked um, or they're not able to deliver enough blood flow to the heart muscle. And if the heart muscle can't get enough blood flow, it can't get the oxygen and nutrients it can to really, you know, pump hard. And um, so I think that coronary, these coronary arteries, think of them as really the nourishment that your heart muscle needs. So unfortunately in our society, you know, we have certain dietary behaviors. I hate to say it, you know, we live in Wisconsin. I love cheese. It's a struggle. It's a struggle for all of us. Um, but you know, from early on, we're actually developing um, fatty deposits in the linings of those blood vessels that feed the heart. And so over time and other things we tend to do like smoke perhaps, or, you know, excessive use of alcohol or not exercise, all of these things start to cause really kind of a, a, a whole body inflammation. And so those blood vessels are really not immune to, to having, um, really calcification and hardening of the arteries. And so I think the public, you know, we think of, of heart attacks, we think of, oh, I have a blockage. I have a hardening of my arteries and, and that's exactly what it is. Um, so that's interesting. So what I'm wondering is what kinds of things can you do to, um, to minimize those blockages or that buildup? So I would want to direct all of your um, audience to really the resources that are available on the American Heart Association. Um, so the good news about coronary artery disease is that we have the ability to change about 80% of our risk. So that's quite a lot. So we can't say, oh, I was born this way or, you know, I'll give up. We can action. I want to emphasize action. So how do we act? We act about one, knowing our numbers. So this is where having good relationships with your doctors to really know what, what critical um, lab tests and values they're getting. So number one, what does my blood sugar look like? Is my blood sugar less than 100? Two, what is my blood pressure? And a lot of people are like, oh, my blood pressure is fine, or I'm afraid of what my blood pressure is when I'm at the doctor's office, you know, be honest and forthright with your doctor. A blood pressure should be less than 130 over 80. If it's over that, it needs to be treated. The third thing is really looking at our weight. You know, an ideal body weight is we use it in BMI terms because everybody's a little different heights, you know, so we have to kind of account for that some way. And so we look at weights with BMIs of 25. And then everybody's always focused on cholesterol. I say, know that what your cholesterol is and have your doctor use resources like the cardiovascular disease risk calculator to know whether or not 
your, um, your cholesterol levels appropriate. That's really helpful. Thank you for breaking that down for us. Um, I'm curious too. Now, um, that's really what we can talk to our doctor about, but what about the symptoms that we might feel if we have heart disease? And I know you're a big advocate of women's health. Um, I love that you're wearing your, your heart healthy red today for um, heart month, the, one of the last days, but can you tell us like some of the symptoms um, that might trigger us to maybe go to the doctor if we're not regular visitors? And then um, are there any differences between men and women in the symptoms? All excellent questions. So let's tackle, you know, what if something's wrong with my heart? Well, first of all, I wanna encourage all of you to really um, be confident that you know that something is, if you think something is wrong, then it, it warrants being worked up. Oftentimes, unfortunately, women are embarrassed to, to say to their doctor something as vague as, you know, something seems off. To help you kind of describe and make it a little bit easier to describe to your doctor, you know, what you might be feeling, I always ask my patients, you know, how far, you know, how far can you walk? Or if you and I took a walk, how far would we go? Because oftentimes one of the first very subtle indicators is, boy, I could walk, you know, a mile a few months ago. And now it's like, I can walk maybe a half a mile and I start to get tired, unusually tired or unusually short of breath or winded. So that's one. The other thing that can happen to you is you can actually feel like, um, like a gnawing kind of chest burning sensation that only comes when you're experiencing activity. And then when you stop, it goes away. Hmm. And women, I have to say, are a little bit more, um, un I wanna say unusual, but in, uh, and not in a bad way, but their symptoms are just a little bit different. And so we have to kind of be on, I always wanna say like high lookout, you know, like get the antennas up because Sometimes it's really just maybe an uncomfortable feeling of nausea or feeling like, you know, you just have lost all that gas in the tank and you just, you have nothing more to give. Sometimes women feel un an unexplained anxiety or just feeling like a wave of depression comes over them and it, they can't sort it out. Those are hard symptoms, right? You don't want to, like, I had some of those last week, right? <laughs> You know, like, it's like, oh, you know, like I'm just doing something and all of a sudden I'm like, hmm, I feel maybe a little anxious. You know, we're not going to run to, we don't want to be embarrassed and run to the doctor for everything. And so what I want to hone you in on is if you have those symptoms, let's start to put in timelines and think about when did it first start? How long does it last? Does it go away? Do I feel like it's getting worse mm -hmm. or is it getting better? All right. Yeah. Those are great tips. I'm thinking, you know, even just writing those things down might be helpful so that if it does lead to something where you want to go see your doctor, you've got a little, you've got some history and a log to share. Um, that's fantastic. Thank you for, for, um, for differentiating between males and females and what we should and, be thinking about. And I really want to actually make a plug for, if you think you're having a heart attack, um, because I think this is always really helpful information. Um, you know, most of us, men or women, will, will have what we call classic symptoms. And classic symptoms is like the, a, a pressure sensation across your chest, sometimes radiating down your arm. For women, it may be that they feel like this weird jaw pain or neck pain 
Okay, so that's something that keeps increasing in intensity and doesn't go away and is often not happening when you're just doing activity. It's even happening when you're resting. Wow. Yeah. That's surprising, right? Who would think that that jaw pain? Oh boy. Thank you for sharing that. Um, We've got um, some questions from the audience. So um, why don't we jump jump into some of those? Um, The first question, how does heredity heredity play a part in heart attacks other than high cholesterol? So I think, um, I think that's an excellent question. So yes, um, the, um, the question is correct that we oftentimes focus on cholesterol because there's actual genes that we study, um, that show that you have really elevated levels of cholesterol and you have premature, um, heart disease. You know, I think sometimes heredity, heredity can be with, um, you know, some forms of diabetes, you know, when we look at diabetes and we look at, um, you know, I'm going to share my brother has type one diabetes, you know, that that's, there was a genetic, there's a genetic inheritance there. He is more likely to have problems with cardiovascular disease because of, of his disease. So I think those are some of them. There are some people who can have, um, again, genetic causes for high blood pressure. That's really unexplained beyond what we have with, you know, age, weight, stress. Um, so I want to, again, kind of turn back to, Hey, let's look at what we can modify and change. And so for that, I'm going to say, let's go back to, you know, uh, getting a half hour of exercise five days a week you know, working on getting your blood pressure treated and making sure that it's okay. And it, and make sure that your cholesterol levels are in safe ranges. Great. Uh, I, we have a new question. Um, what are your thoughts about BMI levels is 25, a cutoff point. Isn't that too low? And, um, I wonder how many of us are able to maintain that BMI at 25. It's hard, isn't it? Um, excellent question. So, um, depending on your, um, depend, so BMI of 25 is the standard medical definition for being within normal weight. Underweight people are actually, you'd have to be less than 20, like in the 19 range. So a B, I don't want you to think of BMI like pounds. So we aren't talking about five pound differences. We're actually talking about pretty large um, differences depending on your size and weight. So to be from a BMI of 20 to 25 could translate into 30 pounds, you know, difference. Okay. Um, once we, once, um, between 26 and 30 is what we call being overweight. And so I still think the goal should be 20, that we work to 25 obesity is defined as greater than 30. And we know, you know, as our weight goes up and our BMI goes up, and also I want you to think about what our waist circumference is, you know, so if we tend to have weight that distributes towards our um, abdomen, you know, and our stomachs, you know, we're putting ourselves at risk for insulin resistance, which puts us at risk of having diabetes. And that puts us at heart disease risk. 
Right. Yeah. So you can just see the logic. So, so it is, it is hard. There's, um, I have to say just from a general lifestyle practice, um, this is where knowing your numbers is very important. So I count calories, um, not in like a freaky way, but you know, I want every, you know, it's oftentimes good for us to see really how many calories we take in because of the hidden calories in our Western diet. And, you know, and give ourselves permission to be, to be reasonable and have goals and crash dieting, bad dieting, you know, keto, all these diets don't give us a long-term strategy. It gives us short-term gains. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm struggling with that myself right now and starting to write down what I eat just because I snack a little too much and I forget that I've eaten that. So thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> well, and COVID has really changed our, the way that we live. And I'm going to be very honest about that. I gained 10 pounds in COVID like everybody else, you know, there's, and it's sad that we have to just be as exact as, yep. Okay. Then I have to take these calories off somehow. Just let's do it in a safe way. Right. A lifestyle change. Um, okay. So we have another question, um, regarding it's, it's back, back to numbers, but, um, we're talking about blood pressure. So for senior women is 130 over 80 still the target or is it higher as we get older? So I generally stick to 130 over 80. Okay. Now I tend, you know, you're going to hear a lot of differences. You know, if you're, if you're in your nineties and, um, you know, that might not be achievable. And so then, you know, our blood vessels actually change over time. So, you know, I think this is where good conversations with your doctors are important. You know, some people can be able to handle 130 over 80 being at the extreme ages. I'm talking into your eighties and nineties. I still try to shoot for it and see if they can hand, you know, if their blood pressure can handle it and they're not symptomatic because we don't want people falling. But I think that our bodies were designed to really have blood pressures, you know, in the one twenties, right. And one set and excuse me, over seventies, the bottom number is also very important. And so we want healthy blood vessels. And to do that means that we keep our blood pressures low. So have a conversation with your doctor. They may say, you know what, you know, measure your blood pressure at home. Just again, a doctor's office, blood pressure doesn't always translate into just the only blood pressure. And so we can overtreat and we can also undertreat. And so I'm a huge proponent of saying, hey, sit down, measure your blood pressure. It's gonna change over the day. It's going to go up and down depending on our, how sedentary we are in front of our computers or out and about doing activity. Thank you. Um, so we have a COVID related question, which I think is really interesting. Um, many people have been infected with COVID now. Um, so the question is how have COVID infections, um, affected our hearts? So some people have seen inflammation of their heart muscle during COVID. Um, we're still in the process of really describing how often it happens. Um, but we, I have seen even in my practice, some people who had, you know, really chest pain after COVID, um, and then also, you know, or maybe some irregular heartbeats. And then as they recover, it has gone away. 
So I haven't seen in my practice, uh, so I'm gonna just focus in on me. Um, I haven't seen a lot of long-term sequelae, but I know that you know our hospital as well as others has, has started to look into having COVID clinics to manage some of the other um, you know, pro problems, sadly, that happened during COVID. I think the one of the big um, news stories of COVID was really the blood clots that could be associated with um, some people with COVID disease. And so there were people who had um, like blood clots in their legs that could sometimes go to their heart. And so they required anticoagulation or blood thinners. Um, and so, you know, there are definitely some things that happen to our hearts because blood clots to the, to the lungs can actually put strain on your heart. So very good question. I think there's a lot of research in this area that's going on to really be able to understand fully the extent and severity of some of these um, complications. But thankfully, what I have seen so far in my own practice is it's fairly limited and self-resolving. Okay, that's good to hear. Thank you. Uh, new question. What is a silent heart attack? What does that mean? Mm, I love that question. So silent heart attacks are when uh, uh, you've gone for a test and they either did an EKG test um, or they even did maybe a stress test or even an ultrasound and they've looked at your heart and it looks like either the wall doesn't squeeze properly or the blood flow doesn't look like it's moving properly. And they say, you had a heart attack. And we see this sometimes in people for a number of reasons. One is, especially in people with diabetes, sometimes you know our nerves aren't always um, functioning as sensitively. And so they just, whatever that symptom was, it could have been nothing. And you just went on with your life. And then all of a sudden noticed a couple of weeks later, you weren't feeling well. The other alternative is, is that again, it was some of those vague symptoms. And so that's why I'm here today to say, Hey, you know, keep it, keep track of yourself and be willing to advocate to your doctor. If you don't feel like something is totally right. And so unfortunately it can be because of the blocked arteries that I talked about. And sometimes in women, um, we have, we are more at risk of another type of heart attack, which is called, um, um, Minoka is the term, but it's really uh, a heart attack that looks like a heart attack. If we did the, the test, not, you know, like I said, just like a stress test or even a cardiac MRI image, but the blood vessels that I talked about earlier that feed the heart are open or they don't look significantly obstructed. And so what we've learned is, is that for women, the small blood vessels that regulate flow at the very tiniest where you can never put a stent in, those somehow have either become very spastic or they clamp down and they cut off blood flow in a, a small area of the heart. And now you can see it. And so again, another way women and men are a little different, um, and, but also important. So if you ever go and have a test done, like an angiogram, where we look at those blood vessels that feed the heart and they say, oh no, there's nothing there. You're good. It doesn't, you know, you can still see a heart attack in some people if you do a different type of test. Wow. 
Uh, oh, we have a new question. Um, how does alcohol play a factor in our heart health? So I have to say that we always look at red wine and we're like, oh, I'm being heart healthy. I'm having red wine, right? <laughs> oh no, don't tell me that's not true. <laughs> there are some aspects of um, heart health and wine. So I'm not gonna, I'm not going down that road. But I do think, especially for women, we have, uh, well, and men too, but more so with women, we tend to be smaller you know, really beyond that one glass of wine, it's probably not wise. Um, and you can see, especially in people who drink alcohol excessively, it actually increases their heart risk. Okay. Um, so how often do you think um, you would advise your patients? Um, how often should they get their blood work done by their doctor? So you've, if you've never had, um, a, if you've never had a heart attack, I think really that annual checkup to look at your cholesterol panel, see, um, you know, are you at risk of having diabetes? So that hemoglobin A1C and um, kidney function test, that's totally appropriate. Okay. I also don't think people need to just have stress tests um, for the sake of having a stress test. Um, that question I get a lot. Well, shouldn't we just check it out and see, you know, the, and I'm like, well, it doesn't make sense to do a test if we don't, if you aren't really having symptoms. So keep that in mind. If you have had a heart attack though, I think that you should be seeing your cardiologist and sometimes you'll need those types of lab tests done more frequently, like maybe twice a year. Okay. That's good to know. Um, so what, just to kind of, we're getting to the end of our, of our time together. And I just wanted you to recap, like, what are your top tips to reduce your risk for cardiovascular disease? What can we all do now for ourselves? What we can do now is know where we're at. So take a healthy self-assessment. So know your numbers. I think I've said that 25 times and you guys are probably bored. Know what your blood pressure is. Know what your, um, what your blood sugar level is. Know what your weight is. Know how much you're eating and know how much you're actually moving. And in COVID times and all these work from homes, I think one day I only walked a hundred steps, you know, we should be walking like 10,000 steps. So not good. So again, kind of think about that. The second thing I would say is also, um, be very aware of your own mental health. And I think one of the big messages that I am preaching to people is our stress plays a role in our cardiovascular health. And we've been living under incredibly stressful times. And we need to understand that if we're depressed or we have anxiety, we need to get help because it affects all of the other medical care that we, that we actually need. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've done studies. If you're, if you're depressed, you're not going to take your medications as consistently. You're not going to want to make those lifestyle changes that really do make a difference. So I implore people to get out and talk to one another and, and, and seek help if they need it. That is so important. Thank you for closing with that. And with that, I'd like to say thank you, Dr. Lore, for joining us today. And to our viewers, if we didn't get to one of your questions, please feel free to drop us an email at conversations at mcw.edu. And I hope you all join us next month for a virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist. 
The Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists is sponsored by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Coffee Conversations with Scientists occur monthly as Facebook Live events and are produced by the Medical College of Wisconsin. We hope you join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist.